You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. This week we've got a pre-recorded episode for you looking back at the main news from 2023, while next week we'll switch focus to 2024 and what we can expect from the year ahead. I'm your host, Paul O'Mahony, and I just want to say thanks to all our listeners for tuning in over the past year and leaving reviews and telling your friends about the podcast. We really appreciate your support. We've got the whole gang in today, the 14th of December, to look back at what's been going on in Sweden over the past year. But with me here in Stockholm is James Savage, and we are joined from Malmö by Becky Waterton, Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Let's get straight into it with a brief analysis of how the three-party right-wing coalition government has performed in its first year since taking power in late 2022. James, what would you say have been its main achievements and failures? And how has it worked having the far-right Sweden Democrats as a party that guarantees support in exchange for policy concessions? Well, <laughs> worked for whom? It's worked for the Sweden Democrats. They've got a lot of influence over policy while gaining strength as a party. Mm. Um, and we'll get into the polling in a second. But the TIDA agreement, which is the agreement between the three governing parties and, and the Sweden Democrats, that enshrined the status of the Sweden Democrats as an equal party in the government, despite not actually sitting in the government. The government, in terms of policies, has introduced measures on things like what they call Visitahunszone. That's where they stop, stop, and, and, search, stop, and, search zones, stop yeah. and search zones, where people can be stopped and searched without reason. And these very much bear the hallmarks of the Sweden Democrats. And of course, the horrendous wave of gang violence that plagued the country all year and for some time before has meant that parties on both sides were competing with each other to propose the most draconian law and order measures. And that's mm. very much played particularly into the Sweden Democrats' hands. The government has also introduced some of the strictest measures on migration for decades. Yeah. And, you know, that's included moves to make it possible to withdraw residence permits from people who've committed antisocial behaviour, even if they haven't committed a crime. Mm. This is very much on Sweden Democrat territory. Yeah. The question is how well all of this has worked electorally for the governing parties. And Becky will get into that in a minute. But really, of the four coalition parties, only the Sweden Democrats seem to have profited in the polls. Yeah. If we just take a step back and think, you know, how history might judge this year, I suppose the most significant thing is still Sweden's NATO application. And if you're looking at that as the big strategic aim of this government this year, it's pretty clear that it's failed, at least so far. Sweden 
is not in NATO. Mm. And there's no guarantee that it will get there. And we'll get into how all that NATO discussion has played out this year a little bit later in the episode. But if we distill that summary into a numerical roundup, Becky, what are the polls telling us about how voters view the government's performance? Well, if we compare the figures in November 2023 to the 2022 election, all three governing parties were polling lower. So the Liberals were 1.6 percentage points lower, the Christian Democrats 1.9 points lower, and the Moderates 1.7 points lower. So I guess based off that, we can say that voters aren't particularly pleased. Looking at the the kind of ruling block, the Sweden Democrats are doing well. They've got a minor gain of 0.7 points. But the real winners since the election are the Social Democrats, who are polling 7.2 points higher than their election figures. If we look at size, the Social Democrats are still the largest party with 37.6% of the vote, followed by the Sweden Democrats on 21.2% and the Moderates on 17.4%. After that is the left party on 7.3%, the Greens on 4.7%, and then the three remaining parties, the Centre Party, the Christian Democrats and the Liberals, are all under the 4% threshold for entering Parliament. If there was an election today, the opposition bloc would have 53.2% of the vote and 196 seats while the current ruling bloc would have 45.1% of the vote and 153 seats. Okay, a long way to go in this government term, but the government not performing particularly well so far in the polls. Uh, So let's get on to NATO now. And as James mentioned, Sweden has not yet succeeded in its bid to join. So what have been the main developments in the NATO saga this year, Richard? Well, you're sounding as if there actually were any developments when it's been more like Mm. a case of excruciating limbo. It started really badly in January when the Danish extremist Rasmus Paladin burned a copy of the Quran outside Turkey's embassy in Stockholm. And this prompted Mm. Turkey's president Erdogan to talk about sending Finland's bid to the parliament for approval, but not Sweden's, which he then did in April. And that was a major blow to Sweden because throughout the process, there'd always been a talk of Sweden and Finland going in step. Sweden agreed to an extradition request in April and then in June, a Swedish prosecutor charged someone for fundraising for the PKK terror group, which is the big terror group which carries out attacks in in Turkey, all of which should have helped um, Sweden's bid, but it somehow didn't. And then just two weeks before the NATO summit in Vilnius on July 11th, which was supposed to be the point at which Turkey would give Sweden its approval, the Iraqi activist Salva Momika burned a copy of the Quran outside Sweden's main mosque, causing outrage Mm. across the Islamic world. But actually, surprisingly, that didn't derail the deal. And then after talks between Ulf Christensen and Erdogan at the summit, Erdogan agreed to submit Sweden's application to the Turkish parliament as soon as possible. But as soon as the summit was over, in fact, I think it was still while the summit was going on, Erdogan immediately went back to criticising Sweden for not fulfilling its side of the deal. And then in September, it moved on again when after having expressed outrage that the US was linking Sweden's membership to Turkey being allowed to buy F-16 jets, Erdogan suddenly said that he would send Sweden's bid for approval if the US went ahead and sold Turkey or agreed to sell Turkey F-16 jets. So so Mm. he he suddenly said, actually, it is that transactional, actually. So then on October 17th, that happened. And Erdogan sent Sweden's membership to Turkey's parliament. But there, the process has ground to a halt. And at the time we were recording this, and probably by the time you're hearing it as well, it still hadn't gone forward to the parliament for a vote. So another major story this year was the decision in August by SEPO, Sweden's security police, to raise the terror threat level from three to four on a five-point scale. What was behind that decision, Emma? 
Well, they said there wasn't one specific incident or threat that made them raise the level, just kind of that the security situation had been generally getting worse over a longer period of time, and that Sweden as as a country was being singled out in calls to action by terror groups, rather than just being sort of a potential target because it's part of the Western world. I think the, the exact words they used at the press conference back in August were that it was based on a, a strategic and long-term assessment. That yeah. being said... There are two things that are often mentioned in relation to the sort of increased threat against Sweden. That's the spate of Quran burnings that Richard mentioned. And uh, there's also this conspiracy campaign, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, which claimed that Swedish social services kidnap Muslim children. So those two things have painted Sweden as a country that's hostile to Muslims. And that has made it a priority target for violent Islamist groups. Mm. What's happened since then, James, in terms of the terror threat and measures being taken to protect against attacks? Well, for a start, there was a terror attack on Swedes, not in Sweden, but mm. in Brussels, that targeted Swedes at the um, at, at, a, at a football match um, in Brussels. Two Swedes were shot dead. They were wearing the Swedish football strip walking through Brussels. Two Swedes were, sh- were shot dead and another was injured by a man who claimed to be a soldier from the Islamic State. Mm. So, you know, a very concrete um, demonstration of of the terror threat against Sweden. One very prominent measure taken to combat the terror threat in Sweden came in November when the police announced that they were banning bags at all major events, so concerts and sports events, due to the heightened risk of terror. And they said that this ban would take effect gradually and would but would apply to all future decisions on licenses for events. So you could see that there's definitely a feeling that this terror threat is real, that it's much higher than it used to be, and that it's starting to affect Swedes' daily lives. So 2023 will also unfortunately be remembered as a year marred by gang-related shootings and explosions. What were the main developments in Sweden's gang conflict this year, Becky? I'd say the main development is this ongoing conflict in the Foxtrot gang, which we've discussed on the podcast before. The number of bomb attacks in a single year was broken at the end of October. September was Sweden's deadliest month since December 2019. And unlike in previous years where gang crime has been particularly bad, most blasts and shootings have occurred in and around Stockholm and Uppsala. Uh, So it's usually Mm. the southern police region, which includes Malmö, which comes in first place. And I think that also kind of reflects the gangs that are in conflict at the moment. I think Foxtrot is more active further north. There's not that much going on in Malmö in terms of gang violence. Another grisly aspect is the fact that relatives of gang criminals who aren't even involved in gang crime themselves have been targeted. And in some cases, the wrong target was killed entirely, which again, we've spoken about before. There's also been a number of cases involving increasingly younger children, either as victims or perpetrators, with probably the most high profile being 13-year-old Milo, or Milo, I guess you'd say in Swedish, who was found shot dead and dumped in a forested area south of Stockholm. So all in all, quite grim, although it is notable that the number of deadly attacks has dropped since the reported arrest this winter in various countries of members of the inner circle of the Foxtrot gang. And we'll move on to a different topic now. And it's one that has directly affected a lot of the locals, readers and listeners, namely the decision to raise the income requirement for work permit holders. Richard, can you remind us why the government did this? Well, that's a very good question. I think the argument is that the old threshold, which was just 13,000 kroner a month, was too low and meant that building firms, cleaning firms, restaurants and hotels 
imported cheap labour from overseas rather than giving jobs to the many low-skilled unemployed people who already live in Sweden. So that's the main argument. And also, politicians also talk about how people in these sectors are abusing, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems with abusive work permits, people falsely mm. giving work permits out. But that isn't a problem that's solved by raising the threshold. So I don't know why. Anyway, but they do argue that as well. Politically, though, it's just a way of seeming tough on immigration. And if I remember mm. correctly, it was the Social Democrats who first started looking at work permits, because for them, it's a kind of union-friendly, left-wing way to be tough on immigration. And then when they mm. did that, then the right-wing parties came in with their own sets of proposals. And obviously, the Sweden Democrats had always wanted to make it tougher. If we look at the law that did come into force on the 1st of November, how has that change affected work permit holders? So the new th- salary threshold, it only applies from the point where you apply for a new permit. So if you're in Sweden on a work permit, but you're earning less than the new threshold, nothing's mm. going to happen to you until it's time for you to apply to have your permit renewed, at which point you're probably going to get rejected unless you've somehow managed to get a higher salary in the meantime. So that means, because it's only been in effect for um, what is it, two months, that means that a lot of people aren't actually affected yet, but they will be. No. What I can say is that it's already affected a lot of people on a kind of more mental level. And we've got mm. so many of our readers who have told us that they are worried about the future. So many of them gave up so much to come to Sweden. So many of them are highly educated, but are working in low-paid jobs while learning the language. So that's a huge source of skills that Sweden is losing, which is also something that we're not going to see the effects of until later. And many are already working in sectors where their skills are needed and which really, really, really need labour, such as healthcare or elderly care. And again, we're going to see the effects of that later. And also the way this was applied retroactively to people already working in Sweden, that's likely to get a lot of other foreign professionals wondering, is is this really a country that I feel comfortable investing in when the rug could get swept out from under my feet just like that? Yeah, thanks for that roundup, Emma. I'm sure this is a story we'll be covering more in the weeks and months ahead. Well, let's take a few moments now to talk about some stories that didn't make as much of a splash as they might have been expected to. And we'll start with the fact that Sweden held the presidency of the Council of the European Union for the first half of the year. But you'd be forgiven for not having noticed. Why was Sweden's EU presidency so low-key, James? Well, I suppose in some respects, EU presidencies are pretty low-key these days. Mm. I mean, in contrast to how it used to be back in the dim and distant past, there is a permanent council president, these days Charles Michel, who chairs meetings of the heads of government, a role which used to fall to the leader of whichever country held the rotating presidency. So, you know, if it had been the old system, Ulf Christian would have been down there chairing lots of meetings in Brussels and being a, you know, the, the important person. Um, and that's not the way it is anymore. So, you know, got this Belgian guy who does it all the time. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd say that if you're going to be fair, the presidency could point to a few achievements. First, you know, on the PR level, it got off to a good start with a photo op in Kiruna with all the EU heads of government and commission president and others in an event that coincided with the announcement of the discovery of rare earth metals up there, which is super important to combating climate change or, you know, adapting to climate change and, and, and you know, building batteries and that kind of thing. And during the presidency, the EU also agreed to important new migration measures and a renewable energy directive, which will increase the amount of electricity generated by renewables. So, you know, a lot of this was the result of work that had been, that had been going on long before Sweden took over the presidency. But Sweden can still 
pat itself on the back for getting these things over the line. And I think when you talk to civil servants and people in the, in, in the government, I think they were pretty happy with how it went. They also ensured that um, the European Union maintained its support for Ukraine, right? Very much so. And, and you know, I think Sweden being such a strong supporter of Ukraine at the helm of the EU during this crucial time was certainly helpful. Another thing that happened this year was that King Carl XVI, Gustav, celebrated 50 years as Sweden's monarch. But it's not a story that dominated the headlines particularly. Why wasn't more made of the King's Jubilee, do you think, Becky? I'm not sure, really. I think my own guess would be that we didn't get a day off for it. (laughs) At the risk of sounding Anglo-centric, the UK has had both a Platinum Jubilee and a coronation within the last two years, both of which Mm. were declared bank holidays. So I think people kind of naturally met up to join in with the festivities, have street parties, that kind of thing, in a way which didn't really happen here. In Sweden, there was a lot of stuff going on on the Friday for the King's Jubilee when most people were working. Saturday just felt a bit like a normal day, at least down here in Skolno, when there wasn't really that much going on. And I mean, for me, at least, it felt a little bit like, oh, that's just something happening up in Stockholm today. Uh, You know, maybe you could have watched it on TV, but it didn't really feel like there were these big kind of events going on. I mean, even when the King and Queen were in Malmo, I think they did the whole cottage tour of the city during normal working hours on a Friday. So most people couldn't join in. Another aspect of it is that there's not really that much pomp and circumstance surrounding the Swedish royals, at least when compared to the British ones or even the Danish ones. But I quite like that. I quite like they're a little bit more laid back, to be honest. Although one thing I did like about the um, King's Jubilee, there was a really good documentary on SVT, Kung and Ayog. Uh, the King and I, I guess, is how you translate it, which I thought was was quite interesting. But yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? When they came to Malmo, my as I said, my daughter sung sung in a li- her little choir for the King, and it was it was it was just surprised me how low key it was. There must have been kind of maybe a hundred people on little chairs. You know, the main square of Malmo wasn't even close to full. It was nothing like how many people there were there for, say, the Malmo Festival when there's a headline act. It was really low key. It was it was it, it surprised me a lot, and I think like like Becky says, it's it was on Friday when I should have been working, and, um, <laughs> and yeah, the, 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 so it's mainly retirees and you know students, yeah. students, yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- you know I think I think often these royal visits they have a bigger impact when they go to smaller places that don't get that much attention, and you know they did go to some pretty obscure parts of the country and and you know met people, and I think there these visits made something more of a greater impact. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, like you say, if if people are working, it's going to be hard for them to turn out to these big shindigs. But I know quite a lot of people who went to the who went who went to the celebrations in Stockholm and said that it was you know pretty cool and um, you know quite a lot of people out on the streets and celebrating, waving their flags, and you know that it was that it was that it was a good day out. If we talk about another king now, so five hundred years ago, Gustav Vasa was appointed king after the War of Liberation that effectively marked the beginning of Swedish independence. But we didn't hear all that much about it this year. Would you have expected Sweden to do more to celebrate 500 years as an independent nation, Richard? I think I would have actually. And and actually, I think that I or we did when we when we when we did a sort of podcast last year, looking forward to this year, we this was one mm. of the big things on the agenda that there's going to be the 500th anniversary of Gustav Vasa. And, you know, there was an event in Strengness where Vasa was elected rather than crowned, I think, on June the 6th, mm. with the Prime Minister, the King and Queen in, in attendance. And there were 
lots of people with with flags and there were a lot of events all day but it wasn't anything close to the kind of things that you've seen in the UK you know with people queuing for days to go to the queen's coffin or yeah but the that's whole... that's also not that's not healthy like it's probably no, a good thing I mean, that's the UK, don't like the UK I would say has gone a slightly slightly, slightly. Nuts with all its union jack bunting and all that kind of stuff but yeah, and, and like you say, I would have expected more, but I'm also not that surprised because Sweden has always been a bit uncomfortable with kind of flag-waving nationalism of the sort that, say, Norway indulges in on May the 17th or, or even that Denmark has with, you know, flags all over the place when it's your birthday or basically for any reason whatsoever. But there is, I mean, one thing, there is a bit... There is a bit of quiet nationalism in Sweden, I have to add, because my my, uh, yeah. my daughter is learning right now about Gustav Vasa at school. And, and in her book, it says, was Gustav Vasa a good king? And then it sort of goes through and it, and it ends up just saying in like broad text, Gustav Vasa was a hero who built the nation of Sweden, which I was oh a bit God. surprised by. I thought, <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm sure, isn't there another side to that? Well, I guess I, I guess the significance of Gustav Vasa is that he broke from the Kalmar Union, this, this union of, of Sweden, Denmark and Norway, and launched Sweden as an independent country. And he also established a dynasty and you know whereas before Sweden had an elected monarchy it wasn't a, it wasn't a democratically elected monarchy but you know the the crown would move between different families and what he established was that it went down from sort of father to son which at that point in time a stabilizing factor it meant you knew who was going to be king after the last one died and so he did usher in a period of stability i think you can overstate this idea that he founded Sweden for a start it was a gradual realization or a gradual a gradual appreciation of of, of that people got i think over the, the that sweden was a unit separate from the rest of scandinavia or that people sort of like started identifying themselves with the state of sweden it didn't sort of happen over one night because gustav vasa came to the throne but look he you know he he translated the bible into swedish he he broke with rome you know these were significant events so it is you know an interesting thing to mark and to reflect upon. Didn't he owe a pile of money and taxed people to the hilt to to get that money back? Well, exactly. That's precisely right. And, you know, he 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 also, um, you know, dissolved a lot of the uh, religious institutions mm. um, and took the money for himself as well. Yeah. You know, a, a very strong parallels with what happened in England at the same time and in lots of other parts of Europe. Um, it was part of a, a much broader um, sort of European uh, movement. And it is a really interesting period, and you know, it was it was a significant period. It's it's very easy to sort of try and construct backwards a, a kind of a, a, a vision of Sweden as it is today, and sort of say, well, you know, this is what Gustav Vasa started, as though he sort of planned it. There were a lot of complex factors involved. I was also quite interested with how the history is taught in schools. That when it talks about the split from Rome and Gustav Vasa doing that, there's absolutely no nuance whatsoever. It, it, I would have expected, you know, shell critique. You know, you're supposed to criticize sources in history, but it's not. It's like the Pope was living a life of luxury and him and his bishops were stealing money from the ordinary people. And I'm like, hang on, th there's another side to this, which I think Swedish school children should know about. Kings are known for not living a life of luxury. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I just think it's extremely that there is this kind of. Um, national narrative, which I suppose if there is in all countries. I mean, we only learnt the mm. first half of the Hundred Years' War between Britain and France because in the second half, England lost So uh, when I was at school. So yeah, there, there, there is all history does at school is, does tend to be nationalist, but I'm surprised at how nationalist it is at Grundskola in Sweden. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm. There, there's a, there's a lot you you Brits don't learn. I found. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The appointment of Gustav Vasa effectively marked the end of the Kalmar Union. But we're going to talk about a different kind of union now because 2023 was a year in which trade unions squared up against some very well-known tech companies. So if we start with Spotify, how did the Swedish streaming giant react to calls for a collective bargaining agreement there? Well, at first they seemed to react quite well. I, I remember when you interviewed the chair of their first union club back in uh, in April, I think it was. He told you that when they set up a Slack channel for all employees to discuss a collective agreement before they actually formally called for it, Spotify management mostly like stayed out of the conversation and didn't try to do anything to, to suppress the channel, which is a mature reaction. And it's, of course, the mm. kind of reaction that you would expect from a serious company. I mean, it's, it's perfectly legal for employees to have these kinds of conversations. But then when negotiations formally started with the union, you could tell that Spotify wasn't actually 100% on board with actually getting a collective agreement. For example, they started handing out these leaflets to staff that listed all of the perks that their employment contracts already gave them and claimed that they were all better off without signing a collective agreement. And then a few months later, sure enough, they pulled out of negotiations. And uh, and we haven't heard a lot since. Even the union has stayed pretty quiet about it, I feel. There haven't been any indications yet that they're going to strike in response anytime soon. So I mm. suspect that there might be some kind of strategizing going on behind the scenes and, and we might get more news next year. But if any listeners here work at Spotify and have inside gossip, you, you know where to find us. A similar dispute played out at the Swedish payments company Klarna. How did it go there? It ended up with a deal. After a lot of brinkmanship and harsh words on both sides, Klarna agreed in November to sign a collective agreement. It seemed to go down to the wire. It looked like a walkout was just hours away. Mm. But the unions and Klarna profess themselves happy with the deal, which Klarna said would maintain the company's agility, but within the Swedish model. Mm. Another story we've spoken about quite a bit recently is Tesla's refusal to sign a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, Becky, can you just remind us why talks broke down between the unions and Elon Musk's electric car manufacturer? I think the crux of it is essentially that Musk is famously anti-union. He hasn't signed a collective bargaining agreement for Tesla employees anywhere. 
in any country. And I don't think he particularly feels like doing so in Sweden either. Tesla employees, or more specifically members of the EF Metall Union working at Tesla, want a collective bargaining agreement and have been trying to negotiate with the company for a few years, according to the union. Tesla has been in Sweden since 2013. More specifically, the union says that Tesla's working conditions are worse than what would be offered in a collective bargaining agreement. Their insurance doesn't cover as much, their salaries are lower than average for the industry, and they have no guarantee of yearly pay rises, for example. But Mm. I think in general, it's also a question of principle. 90% of Swedish employees have a collective bargaining agreement. It's seen as a sign of maturity. And Tesla isn't just a small startup, it's a major company. So the expectation in a way is that it's time for them to join the Swedish model and sign an agreement like everyone else. And, you know, I definitely get a kind of, we won't let these Americans come over here with their bad working conditions and mess with our Swedish system kind of vibe from both the unions and the average Swede when talking about this too. So electric cars might be in the news right now, but if we rewind to the 2022 election, all the talk was of petrol and diesel. And most analysts agree that the eventual winners of the election prevailed in part because of their pledge to dramatically reduce fuel prices. But what have they been doing to implement these plans in 2023? And how do the plans square with Sweden's climate goals? Well, the government parties agreed with the Sweden Democrats in August that they would reduce the biofuels obligation, or Redekundsplikt, to 6% between January the 1st, 2024, so in the new year, and 2026. And then with the obligation moved entirely from January the 1st, 2027. So... That will lead to some reductions, which we'll see uh, in in the fuel price, which we will see at the start of the year. Not huge reductions. And then in the 2024 budget, tax on petrol is being cut by one krona and 64 euro per litre, and tax on diesel by 43 euro a litre to the minimum level allowed by the EU. And even though it's a pretty small reduction in prices at the pump, it's not the kind of 10 krona reduction that they were promising in the election. It's still one of the biggest new tax and spending decisions in the budget. I think it costs... 6.5 6.5 billion krona. I mean, what it means for Sweden's climate goals was was also spelled out in the budget. They said that as a result of its policies, which isn't just the Riddikundsplikt, but this is the biggest element of it, emissions are set to increase by between 5.9 million and 9.8 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent a year by 2030, which is you know more mm. than the whole of Stockholm, for example, another Stockholm, rather than falling, making it unlikely that Sweden will be able to reach its 2030 emissions goals. So it's a pretty significant hole in Sweden's emissions reduction plans as a result of this plan. But they're coming out with a new climate plan before the end of the year. So probably by the time you hear this podcast, which might have come out with some additional plan that that could fill some of this hole. And there were also a few examples this year of climate change appearing to make its presence felt in Sweden. Can you remind us of some of the most striking stories, Emma? Well, I mean, it's always hard to link one specific event to climate change because, you know, there's there's always been weather. But what's striking is more how frequent these extreme changes in the weather are becoming. In in early summer, we had a heat wave, an extreme drought, which was then followed by one of the wettest months of August on record in Scandinavia. Uh, This year's grain harvest in Sweden, it was down 24% compared to a normal year due to the drought combined with the extreme rainfall. Uh, The Farmers Association has predicted that the industry will be making a loss of 7 billion krona this year because the crops are both of poorer quality than normal and the quantities aren't what they should be. And they've put that down to climate change. Yeah. And 
there have also been a few a few individual incidents that stood out, kind of most notably landslides, which caused a train to derail in August because the soil had been washed out from like underneath the railway track due to the rainfall. And there was this massive landslide north of Gothenburg that literally washed away large chunks of the motorway, which could have been a deadly accident if it hadn't happened in the middle of the night, luckily. Mm. And the damage was so bad that they've still not been able to fix it three months later. And this is something that we might see more and more of because we're likely going to get heavier and heavier rainfall in the years and decades to come. And the Swedish infrastructure just isn't built for that. If we move on to to culture now, the year in culture, do you uh, have any books or films or records, TV shows, artworks or any other expressions of Swedish culture that you'd recommend from 2023? Oh, God, you're you're expecting us to be cultured here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Says the most cultured person in the company. Yeah, I don't know know why I got this question first. But um, okay, how about a play? This isn't really Swedish culture. In a sense, it's American culture, but it's a Swedish production, so I think it counts. It is in Swedish. Uh, The play is Arv, or The Inheritance, at Dramaten, at the Royal Dramatic Theatre. It's a translation of a play by an American author called uh, Matthew Lopez, Mm -hmm. um, and it's loosely based on the E.M. Forster novel Howard's End, or sort of inspired by it. But it's set in the AIDS crisis of the 1980s in New York, and kind of, and then, and then, sort of uh, drops down into history a little bit after that, into different periods, watching these characters over a number of years. And the Stockholm production is quite simply one of the most powerful bits of theatre I've seen. It was an incredible performance, a whole day performance in two parts. It takes a lot of time and dedication. And after a run this year, it's coming back to Dramaten in the autumn of mm. 2024. So incredibly, it's already sold out, but there may be some return tickets. And if any come up and if your Swedish is up to it, or if you think your Swedish will be up to it by the autumn, then I highly recommend you going. On the book front, a book I would highly recommend is David Lindian's History of the Stockholm Bloodbath. Mm. Um, It's very accessible, entertainingly told, and not too long if you want to challenge your Swedish comprehension and learn something about this really important part of Swedish history. If we're talking about Gustav Vasa, this is, you know, right at the point that he becomes king. Yeah, so it happened just before it happened just king, before yeah. he became king, and he sort of became king as a, as, as a result, really, of the of, of the aftermath of the Stockholm bloodbath. So it's really worth reading. If you get the chance, um, uh, read that. And I think we should get David on the podcast sometime. He's written for The Local in the past, and he's a really good historian. I saw him on, on the latest episode of Historian Om Sverige. Yes, and, indeed. And I remembered that he had written for us years ago. It was he's a really, a really, he's a really good guy, and um, and he and he writes a, a really good book. It's most entertaining. Mm. Becky? I think I should maybe caveat my answer by saying that the kind of plays I go to is like Nala concert, like the teddy bear concert where you take your bear with you and you listen to kids songs. So I, I don't know how, how great my cultural knowledge is of Sweden. Do you bring your kid as well to those? Yes, yes. I, I don't bring, just bring her teddy bear. Like I said before, I enjoyed the documentary Kungen och Jag, which was about the king. I think the reason I enjoyed it was that it wasn't just like oh, here's our fantastic king, here's all the stuff he does for the country, oh, isn't he amazing? But like, it also addressed kind of scandals that have affected the king, you know? There was a scandal that he supposedly had like cafe flickor or like coffee girls that came to events with him and his his mates. And there was, you know, a scandal that he'd maybe had an affair that he never really said he hadn't done. So uh, I think I, I, I liked that documentary because it, they actually put those questions to him, you know? They, they didn't kind of skirt around 
difficult issues or difficult questions for the king. Was that the documentary also where he was like, Sweden's gender equal succession robbed my son of the crown? Yes. Mm. That was also the one where he complained that um, Victoria was, well, yeah, he complained that the that they changed the law after Carl Philip. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting because I don't know much about the Swedish royals and I learned a bit more about the Swedish royals. Staying on the royal theme, I also enjoyed uh, Drag Race, which is... Um, Swedish drag queens. I'm a massive fan of the American and British drag races. That was on SVT. It was interesting as well that drag race came at a time where you've got the Sweden Democrats kind of speaking out against drag queens reading to children. SVT were just kind of quietly putting out a a massive kind of drag race competition or drag queen competition. How about you, Richard? Oh, can you leave you out? I'm like massively out of date always when it comes to culture. I, I re- I've re- been read lots of classics this year. I read Dr. Glass, which is great. I recommend. But I have read one book which is published this year, which is called Tilbaka Til Rosengård, uh, or Back to Rosengård. It's by uh, Torve Liffendal, who's the politics editor, I think, of Svenska Dagbladet. Mm. And the main reason I went is that it just came up on my Facebook and I thought it was amusing that, well, not amusing, but interesting that somebody was having a book launch in the library in Rosengård. So I cycled up the road and went in. If you don't know, Rosengård is one of these special vulnerable areas where there's always supposedly you know gang crime and shooting and stuff but actually it's not so bad actually I, th- I think but anyway but she what, what was interesting is that she spent would I recommend it I think I'd recommend it, it it's a, it gives you a whole other view on how these areas are like in Sweden because she went there mm. in 2003 on a reporting trip and the reason was that some children at one of the schools had thrown stones at some construction workers and that so it says something about how times have changed that was a huge scandal in Sweden and because came a big like news thing. I mean, some kids throwing stones, it wouldn't even get in the newspapers nowadays. But she went there in 2003 and stayed for several weeks in the area talking about segregation and integration and all the problems which 20 years later are still top of the agenda in Sweden. So I think it's, it was kind of interesting in that. And she also went back in 2013 and met the same kids again. And I think what's really interesting is she's basically catching up with the three boys who are involved in throwing the stones and three girls mm. who were the school's top students. And what was really interesting to me is that they they were all absolutely fine. So the, the kids, they'd been in trouble with the police, they'd, but now they all, they'd all managed to study, go to university, they all had good jobs, and the girls all had good jobs. And one of them, who was an exec- executive from IKEA, was at the launch. But what's interesting is that it's this idea that these troubled areas is that they're kind of arrival districts. They have the same problems as they've always had, you know, high mm. unemployment, a lot of segregation. But what you don't see is that it's not the same people, that mm. the people who arrive there, they move out. As soon as they are integrated, as soon as they do get jobs, they move. So that's why there's high unemployment, because people who have jobs don't live there. And so it was quite interesting to see six people and how their lives had changed. Um, I also read a book called Yaki by uh, Anna Sverd, who's was elected to the Swedish Academy in 2019, but that's actually from 2020, so it doesn't really count. But I would recommend it. It kind of starts out like a kind of Mills and Boone romance and turns into this terrifying, really disturbing story of an abusive, controlling relationship. And that was extremely painful to read. Mm. Emma? I came back from maternity leave this this year, so I'm still learning how to kind of navigate working and having a kid at the same time. 
So can I recommend something that's on my ever-growing list of things that I am going to watch at some point when I figure out how to make time for me time? Go on. Yeah, that still hasn't happened for me. It hasn't happened for me yet. She's nearly four. So, Well, maybe you can bring me to one of your TED concerts. So so there's this new series on on Viaplay. It's called Börja, which is about uh, Börja Salming, who was this uh, this huge ice hockey legend, both in Sweden and internationally. He used to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs, as some of our Canadian listeners may know. He was also known for having been an early supporter of women's ice hockey and LGBT issues and what, what used to be, and, and perhaps still is a bit, quite a, quite a macho sport. And it's a good series, I've heard, if you want to learn about what it's like to grow up in um, in Kiruna in the far north back in the 50s and 60s for, for someone with Sami roots, because he had Sami roots, and also quite a bit of Swedish sporting history. It's worth mentioning that he's played by Valter Skarsgård, who is the fifth Skarsgård son. Fourth, if you don't count the one who's a doctor and not an actor, because I'm not sure, but I think it says in the Swedish constitution somewhere that every movie made needs to have a certain quota of Skarsgård actors. And, um, <laughs> and it also stars Jay Jason Priestley of Beverly Hills fame. Very good. Wow. That's it for the final Sweden in Focus of 2023. Please leave a review on your podcast app if you can. It really helps us get the word out. Our panellists today were Becky Waterton, Emma Lovegrain, Richard Orange and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back next week with a preview of 2024. Until then, take care. 